powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please. Thank you, Sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks at BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's Better, H-E-L-P.com slash Derek Duvall Show. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say a huge thank you to my last guest, Amy Scruggs. What a delightful guest, and the response to her episode was amazing. If you've not had a chance to hear our in-depth interview, I strongly encourage you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. So welcome to episode 169, and we have a truly epic episode lined up for you today. And what will go down as a true highlight in the history of the Derek Duvall Show, we have on the show today an actor of the highest order, Julian Glover. Now, Julian is known to millions all over the world for his roles as the James Bond villain Christatos in For Your Eyes Only, General Veers in The Empire Strikes Back, and as Walter Donovan in Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. This is just a small sampling of the highlight reel, but Julian talks to me about growing up during World War II, how he got into acting, the Royal Shakespeare Company. He tells stories from the sets of his films, stories of working with Steven Spielberg, and talks about his new book, Q to Q, A Career in Episodes. This is hands down one of the best interviews I've ever got to conduct, so let's get Julian out here. Duval Nation, please welcome to the show, calling in today from his home in London, England, a true gentleman and a master of the acting craft, Julian Glover. <laughs> Julian, hello. Welcome to the Dark Duval Show. This is indeed a great honor to have you with us. How was oh. the weather out by you today? Oh, the weather's damn good. Um... For, for the first time this year, I've been able to sit in the garden this afternoon, which accounts for the fact that I'm rather pink. I do apologize <laughs> to your viewers. <laughs> yeah, I pink up easily. I have very fair skin. So I start my interviews off the same way, and that is, how has it been for you to navigate the COVID world up to this point? Well, uh, like a, quite a lot of people, I think, we, we didn't have a bad time during COVID. We didn't get it. Actually, my granddaughter's got it this minute. It suddenly leapt on and it's ruined our holiday. They were oh, going no. away today, but oh, don't. So everybody can't go away. Anyway, no, we navigated it well. I spent most of mine writing a book, which I'd like to talk about, which was a, a, a great uh, excitement for me. Both my parents were journalists and uh, and very good writers. And I'm good at jotting the, the odd thing down. But um, I didn't actually have a task. And I was asked to do this um, by the publishers, which is very flattering. And I said, I wouldn't do an autobiography. And they said, no, we don't want an autobiography. I personally find actors' autobiography pretty tedious. And um, <laughs> you know, I, well, I once worked with Richard Harris, so, you, you know, 
Al Pacino passed by that day. Um, I don't find that very interesting, but what they asked for was um, several, maybe 20 suggested, actually I went to about 28, special things that had happened to me. Um, that happened to me, and so I deal with some things which are terribly well known, the sort of things that are the reason I'm on this podcast, <laughs> but also other things that uh, have terrifically appealed to me and maybe not known at all by anybody, but I've explained why they're there. You know, I've written a, a chapter on my best performance ever and my worst performance ever, for instance, that sort of thing. My first film, my first major TV thing, and um, that play that I did in Scotland, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, I could do um, 151 such instances. I've been around such a long time. <laughs> but I, I was restricted to 28, and 28 is what you've got. And the book is called Q to Q. I don't mean the sort where you queue up to buy a bottle of milk. I mean um, the queue in a theatre. It's now your queue to go on. Mm. It's called Q to Q because it's in episodes. And it, it moves from one inspiration to another. That's why it's called that. And it's absolutely full of photographs. It's it's more, um, <laughs> well, it's a loo book, really. <laughs> uh, but to elevate it a bit, it's um, it's a it's a coffee table book, and which you just pick up and uh, flip through and read what interests you at that particular moment, or you know. And I hope it's quite entertaining. Um, I've done my best. It looks jolly good. I can't blame the publishers for anything. And it was uh, it was published last uh, Monday and uh, is available, as they say, in all bookshops and on Amazon, <laughs> of course. <laughs> you see, publicising it like mad. I am actually doing quite a lot of publicity for it because nobody else will. Um, so I'm contacting various organisations and talking to them and uh, there seems to be quite a lot of interest. I hope some of your your viewers will, will get it, but that would be nice. Yes, it will. With all the photographs and what have you, it's in it. How long did it take you to compile everything and finish the book? Well, it took me, I started writing it just after the COVID pandemic started, sort of April, May of that dreadful year. And um, on and off with lots of uh, emails, of course, to and from the publisher and finding the photographs and uh, he found one, for instance, for the front page, for the, for the front cover, which I had found. And he said, this is no good. It's, it'll come out pixelated. It's not good enough quality. And bless his heart, he, he then bought a copy of the film it concerned, which was Charlton Heston's Antony and Cleopatra, and which I had a rather nice part. And um, he found, he said, rang up and said, hooray, hooray, hooray. I've found a really good copy of it now. It's not pixelated. So you can have that for the front cover now. But that sort of thing was happening all the time. I'd find a photograph and say, is this one any good? Could we use that one? Da, 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 da. And he, he would do the same thing. I found this one in a, in a funny cupboard. Somebody, is it any use? I'd say yes or no or whatever. It was a very cooperative effort. And um, uh, it took me, I suppose, I was ready to deliver beginning of last year. And uh, then it started its long i don't know if you've written a book but a long progress yeah. have you no unfortunately i have not uh, one, day. one day though the, the you know progress between cup and lip is uh is quite a long time but anyway it came out on on monday and i'm really chuffed with it i was even pleased with it than i thought i was going to be 
really rewarded all the effort. What has the reception of the book been like since you know since well, its release? So far, very, very good. Um, I've had a couple of very nice reviews, and uh, uh, you know Giles Brandreth? Uh, he had a look at it, and he rang me up just saying, this is the most wonderful book. He said, we've got to do something about this. And I said, I don't quite know. He said, well, let's start off with a, a face-to-face talk at uh, Riverside Studios in London, which is quite local to me, which is convenient. And I'm organising that for next week. And so um, uh, it'll be a big a couple of hundred people there. And uh, that's the sort of thing I'm trying to organise. And, of course, the book festivals one tries to do. I did a big uh, reading locally in my local village of Barnes in, in London, um, which I did a signing for, which went quite well. And it seems to be selling average. I think it's not going to be a bestseller, but I just hope that people are going to enjoy it for what it is. Absolutely. Even if they lend each other copies, which I understand my authors hate that now. My mother used to say, somebody lent a copy of my book to someone. God, God damn it, that's 12 and 6. I haven't earned. <laughs> <laughs> so, Julian, every journey has a beginning. And if I'm correct, you were born in Hampstead, England. In 1935, what do you remember growing up in World War II England? Well, I didn't spend any of it in in, um, in Hampstead. We moved out of there quite quickly. And by the time I was conscious, I was about um, four or five, we moved to Bristol. My mother was a, a writer of BBC Schools Department, and she was a script writer there for their, their dramatic presentations there. And uh, they moved their department to Bristol. Uh, you might know this White Ladies Road, Bristol, and um, where they still are. And so she had to move to Bristol too. And I was very pleased. I, it, it suited me well because it was on the edge of, of woodland, which was very exciting for a young lad who hadn't sort of had that sort of uh, surroundings before. And we shared a house with a very nice family. And the whole of the war was, was spent there. And... <laughs> Just before we got there, we we couldn't get a house, so we had to find a house just outside Bristol, which is when they started the bombing. And they, our authorities put up a very convincing, I don't know what you call it, a, a blind in the woods behind us, um, or canvas and things, painted as Bristol. So they bombed the hell out of that, that wood, <laughs> which was right next door to where we lived. Um but it missed us, thank God. And but they then they realised they hadn't bombed Bristol yet. And as they realised that, we moved into Bristol, and so they, they bombed the hell out of Bristol too, just as we got there. But as you see, I was saved. But I did. I went to the Bristol Grammar School, which was quite an eminent school at that time, and didn't know it was an eminent school. Actually, the first school I ever went to was. Um, <laughs> Houston High School for Girls <laughs> in what's called the transition class, which is between being nothing at all and going to primary school. Um, and my mother realised it was time I left that when I came home and told her that I was going to be monitress next term. Uh, <laughs> I think we'll move him now. Anyway, I went there and um, had a hugely enjoyable time in those woods. And I, my best friend became the son of the woodman there. And I learned so much and had such wonderful experiences there. But the, I, as they say, I had a good war. But then I was only a little boy. You know, children, unless they're bombed on things, uh, they don't realise that what's actually going on. I've learned a lot about it since, of course. But um, it was a good time for me, that. And my mother was gainfully employed, and that was good. 
Then we moved into London in, uh, in uh, 40, end of 45, just after the war. Uh, and she continued her job. And uh, we went on staying with the same family, which was very fortunate. Uh, family of girls, it was, actually, which partly was helpful when I got into my early teens. <laughs> <laughs> what inspired you to do your bit for the British Army? I didn't have to... Uh, to volunteer for it, I was called up. Mm. Uh, we, all us young lads, had to do that at that time, called national service. Yeah. Um, and you were called up into, well, at the beginning, you had a choice uh, as to which uh, arm you wished to go into. And of course, I opted for the Navy because I love water, um, but didn't get into that. And I didn't get into the Air Force either because I'm colorblind. And they, you can't have colorblind people in those those arms with all those buttons and things flashing at you. So I ended up in the army, and um, <laughs> in the the only part of the army, they didn't know what to do with people like me uh, in the army. So they put us into the, the service corps, which provides all the food and the, the transport and things like that, stuff that we could deal with. Uh, <laughs> no, nothing too technical. <laughs> uh, and so I went into that and did my national service, and uh, you obviously heard about that. And it, it, I much resented being in the army, frankly. And a lot of my contemporaries, including uh, Albert Finney, who was at RADA at the same time as me, um, he did a very cunning thing. He um, starved himself, and uh, they, he just went on starving himself. And they said, well, we can't have this, this in the army, someone who's prepared to starve himself. You know, so he got out. So he gained 18 months on all the rest of us. But then he had 18 months more talent than I did, so uh, he was allowed to do that. <laughs> what are your favorite memories from attending the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art? Well, I did only do one year there um, because, because of the army. Uh, the custom then was to do your year uh, of... of whatever training you want to do, and then do your national service of two years, and then do another year when you finish your professional training. Well, it, I couldn't afford to do my second uh, second year, or my father couldn't afford to do it. Uh, so I came out the minute I finished in the army, and uh, I didn't mind that, because that meant I got on with it and, and started to I suppose it'd be something called an actor. I started to act. That was the point. That's what I wanted to do. And um, and it started, and here I am, still at it, 88 years old, and uh, quite proud of the facts, really. I understand now why people, old people boast about their age. I understand. That used to make me laugh when I was a kid. <laughs> Not anymore, it doesn't. <laughs> well, there are aspects that make me laugh. I'll give it that. <laughs> What's it like to perform at the Royal Shakespeare Company? Oh, well, uh, that that's, I was with them for three whole years, but for in all 13 assistants, three whole years to start with, and I kept on going back um, as my career advanced, and I, my parts got better there. Um, so I did, finished up doing 15, 14 seasons with the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, I started off, of course, as a, I was tall, um, I am tall, and I was useful for standing at the back and holding flags and standing in front of the lights and uh, all that stuff and contributing with hearty laughs and things when we extras were allowed to do so. 
we, there was also a system, of course, we had to understudy and um, start off with understudying very little stuff because they don't really know what you're up to. I was terribly lucky in that I got to understudy a part of Tybalt in Romeo and Juliet, which is a very, it's a small part, very, very flashy, very flashy, with a, a sword fights and everything. And the, the actor playing it was off on the first night. He had terrible asthma. Stratford does that for people. It's very low-lying and damp. Um, and he was, and I had to go on. And thank goodness I'd done my homework, and I was absolutely prepared for it, and went through the fight and fine, all fine. And that brought me to the attention. In, this business is so much luck, isn't it? Brought me to the attention of the the people who ran the company, and so they, he started. They started to promote me. So my next season was better. The third season was really good, and um, I mean, really good small parts. And it wasn't until later on that I started to progress to the ha-ha-ha award-giving sort of part. Um, as I got old, uh, and here we are, Shakespeare is the, the, the great um, love of my life, except my personal life, of course, so I didn't <laughs> that quite a lot. Um, he, he dominates my, my thinking and my, my whole attitude, really, and this was all brought about I went to a school in South London, which is where I lived at that time um, in my early teens, called Allen's. And Edward Allen was a great uh, Shakespearean actor uh, at the time of Shakespeare. And uh, when he retired, he founded a school for, small, for poor boys in South London, uh, which still exists in two forms now, Dulwich College, which is a very, very posh um, public school, and uh, Allen's College. Uh, called Allen's College of God's Gifts, which I rather liked as a title. Sounded rather smart, grand. Um, and he founded this school, which as I say still exists. And I was lucky enough to go to it uh, when I was just about the right age, 14, 15, 16, 17. And the young English master who just graduated, as it were, from Oxford, decided to revive the neglected tradition of doing Shakespeare plays in that in that, that school. And he did a production of Julius Caesar, an open-air production of Julius Caesar in modern dress, uh, in modern Italian dress, as it were. Uh, so it got the right location. Uh, and I'd never done any acting before, but because I was good at something called reading out loud, I had a little brother at that time who I had to read to a lot in the evenings to put him to bed. Um, I got the part of Mark Antony, who many of your viewers will know is a, a really flashy part, fantastic, with an amazing big central speech and um, oh, one fantastic thing to start off with. And that, plus uh, playing a Gilderman Sullivan opera the next term, um, made me go into my parents and say, this is what I want to do. And actually, I didn't say that. I just, this is what I'm going to do because it was as firm as that. And I actually discovered, whatever anybody else may think, uh, what I was here to do. And whether I've been admired or not admired, that's it, that's what I do. And uh, which is why I can't stop doing it. And why at my elevated age, I'm still doing it when people ask. <laughs> it really was a, a, a vocational inspiration that. Um, it was my, oh, I don't know. What was it St. Paul did? Um, anyway, he, he found a revolution and uh, I had it. I just I just knew then. Unfortunately, my parents were 
I say they were writers and um, very liberal-minded, and they, instead of going, oh, my God, like most people would have done at that age, my son and actor, God, what are we going to do? <laughs> they didn't. They said, okay, that's what you want to do. We go to RADA. Go to RADA Academy and RADA Academy and start yourself off and see if you're any good. And that was it. So I wasn't that lucky. <laughs> so we're going to talk about Doctor Who in a second. But before that, I want to ask you, what do you remember from the early days of appearing on British television? Well, I look back and I, I was very lucky. That, again, lucky. My very first television was a series which uh, a young man uh, who was a very keen Shakespeare chap um, founded for BBC called An Age of Kings, which was Shakespeare's history plays from Richard II through to Richard III. And he did. He wanted to do them as a sort of soap. So every week there was a 50-minute episode of Shakespeare, and uh, which was a frightfully good idea. And he had a, a basic company of us young kids and brought in the odd person like um, Sean Connery and and Judy Dench to play, you know, big, big parts. And um, we all, we kids, we all had one really good part and the rest, we just play what we were told, you know, ushers and grooms and people to stand in front of lamps and <laughs> whatever. <laughs> and it was a tremendously exciting start to my television career. After that, um, like many young blades, um, we relied upon BBC, and, and later on when ITV came, shows how old I am, um, for the series, uh, The Avengers, The Saints, uh, Randall and Hopkirk, all, all of those series which don't exist anymore, but actually kept us all alive, we kids, uh, at that time. So I was very in, in favour of the way they did it then. Hasn't basically changed here. Uh, the only difference being the Exterior work, well, all the work now is done on digital, as we know. Um, whereas when I start, all exterior work was done on film, which meant uh, they had to be much more careful about how much time we had to do each thing. Don't waste the film, don't waste the film. Um, and also, on the first day of a film, you had to wait till the next day to find if you would stay in the film, because they had to see the rushes to see if you came out of scratch. So right. there was always that 24 hours of fear that you'd be... <laughs> Yes, <laughs> that you'd be taken out of the movie. Um, but now there's none of that. You see it straight away. I mean, you see it immediately after you've done it. And uh, and you hope the director's liking it then. I've not yet been sacked from that, for that reason. I've been sacked from two television shows. Um, obviously because they didn't think I was any good, but I don't care about that. I'm, I've done plenty of work after that. Thank you very much. And those two people are dead. <laughs> that's great that's great i like that so you appeared on doctor who did you yeah. know going into it how successful it was going to be and are you still amazed it's going as strong as it is in the modern age yes um i could simply answer that question with yes but i've done two lots of doctor who um i was in the very very first series with william hartnell and gene marsh uh I played uh, Henry V. I played Richard the Lionheart uh, with R William Hartnell, uh, uh, which was, it was at the top of its then. then. It had really taken on in the first series. And we knew it was a good thing to be in. Not that I'd have turned it down. I mean, I accepted everything um, in those, and now, frankly. Uh, 
But we didn't get on well with Mr. Hartle, I'm afraid. It was a, well, he was, he was quite a difficult man. And I, I suppose we were arrogant. I don't know what he called us, me and Jean Marshall, you know, the, the, the posh actors and the lardies and those pejorative phrases. And he used to giggle about us with the crew uh, uh, from, from afar, we used to notice. So we didn't get on very well, unlike the second Doctor Who, which I did with Tom Baker, which was gloriously entertaining to do. And Tom was on the top of his bent then. The story was such a gloriously, wonderfully written, terribly silly story, which was a joy to play. And so that was a, a good thing, a good thing to have done, as it turned out. Uh, being, you know, one thought of it as just bread and butter then, but it's turned into much more than that, like Star Wars. Uh, not not quite like Star Wars, but it's blossomed in that way. Right. And as you say, it's still going. I mean, it's, it's quite extraordinary. There was that, was it 10-year gap between the, and yes. um, starting up again? And there it still is. Good God. And I was, I must have been about 28 or something when I did my first one. And here I am, 88. 60 years it's been going around. I'm, I'm amazed that it's doing so well in America. That was what really shocked me because this is technically a British show, but it is very endearing over here in the States. Yeah, that's interesting. That really is interesting. Uh, I, I, I was in a play called um, Otherwise Engaged once, um, uh, which was so English. It, it starred Alan Bates at the time. Uh, it was so in, terribly English, university, English university, uh, that sort of sort of play, terribly, very, very funny, um, and that went to America, and we all said it can't, do it. it can't possibly. It, it, it's so, it's so parochial, and uh, but it went an absolute smash and ran for a year on Broadway. So Americans are, are so sensitive to other cultures, and it's uh, it's a very good country for that from that point of view. Growing up in Great Britain, um, one of my favorite shows of all time was Only Fools and Horses. And bringing that to America, showing to my American friends, my American family, it goes right over their head. They can't understand the the I, language. I, I, no, they can't. And the accents are very strong. Yeah. Uh, and also the vernacular of it all is very strong. Uh, yeah, it is very, very cockney humor, that. Very yeah. cockney, but extremely funny over oh, here. It's brilliant. <laughs> it's, you know, your, your leading American shows come over here and do wonderfully well because mm -hmm. we can understand the accents, except, of course, when you can't. But that isn't normally in situation comedies. That's in films, big films. Sometimes we can't understand a word of it because the accents are being done so well by the actors. And I suppose it's the same with our films. You, yeah, it's, mm. Some of them you completely miss. But I think mostly speaking, British people speak, British actors speak, pretty clearly and um uh, well i speak a thing called rp called received pronunciation um which i always have done because my parents did and their parents did etc etc and most actors find that it's good for them to sort of sort of not to learn it but to acquire it as it were on on the road to success or while they're having success some people of course make their livings um doing that particular dialect uh, for the rest of their lives. And why not? If they are showing talent and entertaining people, well, yeah, anything goes, really. So I want to talk about For Your Eyes Only. Um, before we get into the casting, I want to confirm, 
Were you considered for the role of 007? Yes. Um, okay. That's the straight answer. But I don't think with much hope. Mm. Uh, I think there must have been half a dozen, ten of us who did the test. And I was, I knew at the time, I was terrible at the you know, test. I just was, I just didn't pull it off at all. I didn't, I didn't find a swing of him uh, in the test. And I don't know whether that was the fault of the test or, or what it was. But anyway, Roger Moore got it. We, we all knew he was going to get it because he just finished in the sink. Right. But suppose they had to do the obligatory thing according to the union that you've got to audition people. Anyway, I don't don't resent that because I got a wonderful part in it in the Bond film anyway. So I can't come back, of course, because I was the villain. Exactly. That's why I never do the sequel to any of these films. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you remember actually being cast in for Your Eyes Only? Well, <laughs> I'd had a terrible year, a really terrible year. One of those years that actors dread and we were... Uh, we'd already sold the car and we were thinking we'd have to sell the house and all that. And my agent rang me one day and said, there's this uh, crooky old film going on uh, in Athens. It's a, a biblical thing starring Tony Hopkins. I said, yes, I'll do it. It's certainly at 400 pounds or a thousand pounds for eight weeks work. I said, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. So that's why, thank goodness, I was going to break. The... Then five days later, he rang and said, Screen Actors Guild strike in the United States. The film is off. Oh, Christ, over there we were back at square one after I had booked my wife and son's accommodation in Greece. Two days later, my agent rang again and said, you'll not believe this, but there's another thing happening in Greece. Um, and you've got to go in and meet them on Saturday morning. I said, you never cast anything on Saturday morning. He said, Saturday morning, Julian? Uh, he said, damn all money but it's a job so i went in and it was a thing about alexander the great in which i was to play his father philip of macedon and uh, it was a very weird piece a very poor script but starring some rather rather good people and um so i went out to do that uh, about a week after my parent my family had gone there on the pre-booking and i was doing that and i was in the middle of that was a three-week shoot and on the last, the last but one, or the second Friday, my agent rang me to say, they want to see you in London for the new Bond film. I said, what, for the villain? And I, I said, oh, Jeremy, I can't. I'm filming all tomorrow. It's, it's, this is Greece. It's not, we have to film Saturday. He said, Julian, I'm talking to you about doing the villain in a Bond film. Fix it. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, well, he's absolutely right. So I went to the first assistant and said, this is the situation. What can you do? And he was very nice. And he rearranged the schedule for next day, which meant that I left at about uh, 12 o'clock lunchtime in my Greek costume still and my makeup and made an absolute dash to the airport, went and took my stuff off in the loo at the airport and got into two airplanes and come to, came to London. And the next day I saw Cubby Broccoli and his wife and the whole of the unit, all the costume people, the makeup people, everybody was there, obviously very serious, having been told not to smoke, because Cubby Boxley couldn't bear smoking. That was when I did smoke, haven't smoked for 30 years now. I don't do that. And I did the interview and I got it on the spot. I couldn't believe it. I flew back that night and the next morning I was up at six, so filming again. And the next night I bought 
drinks for the whole crew and dinner for the first assistant. And uh, the filming was only 25 minutes away uh, by an aeroplane from Corinth to Athens. And and the first uh, envelope I was given when I arrived in Athens was uh, 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 money for £525 per diems. I couldn't believe it. I simply couldn't believe that my life had so changed uh, in about four weeks. It's completely reversed, the whole thing. And that's an actor's story. I'm sure it could be repeated by many people, but that's my one. Mm. And that kicked me off into a completely different area, Mm. as you can understand. So I want to talk about 1980, The Empire Strikes Back. What did you know about Star Wars going into the film? I knew the first film. Uh, the first film, uh, Star Wars, had knocked our heads off us, us young, well, particularly the young people who couldn't believe that this thing had happened, that that, that genre <clears throat> had been taken, uh, one of space travel and all that, and made into that, which was so simply wonderful. I mean, the, the very beginning of the film, when the, the aeroplanes are what do you call them, aeroplanes? Through all those rocks and things, and lightning speed and all that. Wow! We were absolutely not sideways. Uh, and I have to say that um, I got into it, into Empire, uh, completely by nepotism. Uh, my next door neighbour, I live in a very modest house in South London, but next door neighbour was a man called Robert Watts, who was the executive producer on Star Wars. And uh, we knew each other as chums next door. You know, we'd have a drink with each other occasionally. And um, we were both in the garden one afternoon, tipping away and having the conversation like you have over the fence in traditional stories. And I said, what's up? What's up with you at the moment? He said, well, I'm making the, the second film. Uh, it's called Empire Strikes Back. I said, oh, I see. Yes, I see Empire Strikes Back. Yep. It's a fantastic film. He said, yes, you want to be in it? So when he picked me up and, and I shouted, Isla, come out here, my wife, Isla Blair, the actress Isla Blair. Come out here. I said, Robert, will, will you repeat that? I said, he said, I just asked you if you wanted to be in Empire Strikes Back. I said, yes, I do want to be in Empire Strikes Back. He said, it's not a large, not a large part, but it's a very good one. And it's it's very good, small part. Uh, I said, well, of course, I'll do it. And I did it. And uh, again, another turning point, which uh, by a, a, another mysterious angle, got me into ha- Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade as well, because it was the same uh, executive producer, but he didn't, he couldn't cast it himself. He suggested me for a part in it, which I didn't get. Uh, but they came up and they said, would he play the villain? And I well, God. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, oh, also, it's being directed by Steven Spielberg. Oh, what? <laughs> Steven Spielberg. So I had Sean Connery, Harrison Ford, and Steven Spielberg uh, to contend with. Oh, what, a, what an extraordinary adventure that was. And that was, again, sort of nepotistic. There's, uh, I hope I gained it on my own merit in the end. I had to read for it and things. But um, right. That, that's another thing that can happen in the business. You can go one way or the other. And I, made, I made a terrible mistake in my early theatrical career by taking a film, which I needed the money, instead of a particular theatre job, which went on to make the actor who played it into something of a star. 
and um, so you make mistakes along the line. And, and well, that's that's tough. I'm still here. So when I told my listeners that you're going to be on the show, I had them submit a few questions, and I've sprinkled them in and out through this interview. But one of them is based on Empire, and that is, you know, what is it like to have a toy based created based on your character? Well, first of all, you can't. It comes through the post. So what's this? And the first one was one of those little tiny ones like that. Mm-hmm. And I said, 13 seasons with the Royal Shakespeare, four <laughs> years with the National Theatre of Great Britain, and that's it. The <laughs> sum of my career. Uh, <laughs> But I was very grateful for it because people started to buy it and asked me to autograph it. And then the big models came out. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, I was called an imperial commander before they realized that um, I was going to get quite known. And uh, they now issue the same thing, pretty well the same model, but with uh, General Veers on it, which is my character, as you know, um, and Julian Glover written on it too. And now they've done another one, which is uh, the different clothes that I wear. Um, which is very satisfying. There's no naked one there, I'm afraid, for your view, disappointed <laughs> viewers. But that's all, that's also very frightening. And they've just, either uh, have just about, or they're just about to issue an Indiana Jones model, too. Mm-hmm. I find very, very flattering and, um, and very satisfactory. I do a lot of these conventions, you know. Yeah. Uh, the older I get, uh, the less the parts are in the, in the theatre and films. For me, I do more of those to keep me going, really, and write a book. <laughs> are the, when you go to these conventions, are the fans pretty receptive? Are they very appreciative of your work? But, you know, they go to these things because they want to go to them. And a lot of them, very flatteringly, now go to a convention just because I'm in it. Mm. Most people go because, I don't know, um, um, uh, Darth Vader's in it. Or, you know, another big American star who I don't know. They go for all sorts of reasons, but I find a lot of people go just because of me. And because I'm there on offer, as it were, as a sort of, I'm an offering, I'm a a thing which they are interested in, they're always very nice to me. Mm-hmm. And um, some are very flattering indeed. They tra- travel long distances. I've, I've had people come from the States to do one in this country. And I've had, like, people come from, uh, the West Indies to, to, to a London convention uh, to get my autograph, which is which is very flattering, and a photograph. Right. Uh, and, uh, uh, I find what's been so many good things have happened in my career, including my private life. My God, I'm so lucky in that respect. Is that I'm well known now and quite often recognised in the street, but never intrusively like many star actors I've known. I used to be a great friend of Chuck Heston, and he had such trouble. Uh, he, he really couldn't go into out into public, and uh, if he did, he'd have to hide his face and all that. Right. I, I'm someone who's who's done enough to be sort of recognised, not bothered, uh, and not being a star, but being recognised. So I'm useful to people as a sort of semi, and I'm not so expensive, etc., 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 which is a great advantage, and I'm not bothered. I'm when I am bothered, it's rather nice. Somebody comes to me to the street and said, "I liked your work in so and so." That was rather nice. Or in a restaurant, not like I, I, I once went to a restaurant in 
I was working in the West End of London in a, in a play, rather popular play. Um, oh, the one I told you about, which went to America, which right. was so successful. And Chuck came over uh, in order to see it. And uh, I arranged with a restaurant in Soho, which is so replete with actors and people, said, he's coming. Um, I don't want any bother. And they said, come on, we get Alec Guinness and people in here all the time. Mm. So we put a went downstairs into the corner in a round table for our little party. And the first person, the first person to ask for an autograph was one of the waiters. <laughs> he just couldn't resist. Right. They can't resist. I live right next door, literally next door to Robert Pattinson. Literally oh, okay. next door. I've known him since he was two days old. He doesn't live there anymore. He lives in New York and uh, in L.A., of course, but he's always over here. And I see the trouble he has. When he goes to our local pub, he's known, but he's more than known now. Right. And uh, people crowd him now, even though it's quite a small community list. Uh, that must be what I worked with Sashi Kapoor, that great Indian actor, on a film called Heat and Dust. And he couldn't, he couldn't go anywhere, anywhere, anywhere in India. Uh, right. He had to be in a closed car all the time, which is not much fun, is it? No. I haven't had that, and... Um, well, here I am. Okay, Deval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Julian Glover. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep breaths. You know that's right. Clouseau style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Please give your attention to a few friends of my show, and we will be right back. Are you craving a cinematic thrill? Join Too Many Captains, four friends who choose a new release in theaters and look back at an important film that influenced it. Tune in weekly for your ultimate movie fix. We break down everything from the story structure to the budget versus box office and the masterminds behind cinema classics. Think Damien Chazelle, Catherine Bigelow, Alejandro Gonzalez, and Eric Tu. Close enough. We dish hot takes on A-list stars we all know or mispronounce. Like Ralph Finesse, Seorsi Ronan, and Shewelta Ijafor. You get the gist. Find us at moviepodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Join the fun as three fanboys and an ADHD buddy dive into film history. Too Many Captains, your film podcast fix. Hello Duval Nation, Derek Duval here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring The Derek Duval Show. BetterHelp is the world's first therapy service, and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality 
you can expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you. More scheduling flexibility and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. Hey there, this is Chad from Larkin, and you are listening to The Derek Duvall Show. You can find all of our releases on No Records out of Long Beach, that's K-N-O-W, or you can find them on almost all streaming services, and we hope to see you around down the next gig. Cheers. Oh, Cunt and his comrades like lions at bay From South Dublin Union, poor death and despair But what was there often the invaders men saw All the dead khaki soldiers in Erin go bra This is Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. In my award-winning memoir, you'll discover the raw humanity, intricate complexity, and brutal barbarity of those who served in the Iraq and Afghan wars, and the psychological toll it took on modern veterans. You can purchase Where Cowards Go to Die on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere major books are sold. Look for me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Benjamin C. Sledge. Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? If you want Kleenex for your classroom, maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts! Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Hi, this is Glenn. And this is Sonia from Echo Valley. And you are listening to The Derek Duval Show. Here's a song called Faces in the Mirror from our album Anarchy and Alchemy. Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated. And good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing Podcasting Made Easy from Podtastic Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is Podcasting Made Easy. How easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at 
podtasticaudio.com slash easy. Hey, it's Michelle Fabre, and you're listening to The Derek Duval Show. You can hear my brand new single, I'm All That I Need, on all streaming platforms right now. Hello, everyone. This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 169 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with legendary actor Julian Glover. So one of the most points of pride I take with my show is the ever-growing list of guests from actors, screenwriters, and such who have worked with the genius we know as Steven Spielberg. Can you walk us through what it's like to work with him and collaborate with him? Well, uh, he cast me, um, having only seen me on tape and not even pretending to act the part, which was very complimentary. Um, Stephen, I'm sure everybody says the same thing. Stephen is in love with the cinema. But... Um, Quite a lot of love affairs end in disaster, but his has not. He's, he's concentrated on his bride, as it were, all his life. Well, we've seen the latest film, haven't we? Mm -hmm. and it's all about him and a terrific film, marvellous piece of self-examination. Wonderful. Um, so his attitude to people who work in the industry is very respectful. Um, he can do anything on the set. I'm sure you've been told that too. Right. He can... Uh, he can operate the camera, he can do the lighting, he can do makeup, and he can, you know, he can even do hair. I've seen him fiddling around with girls' hair uh, on the set. Uh, and he knows exactly how everything works. The only thing he can't do is act. And, <laughs> uh, and so he's wonderfully free with his, his dealings with actors. He casts you because he thinks you're right for the part and you're going to do the part right. So that part is, that element of it is of getting, getting us to do the part right is, go is gone. Uh, it, but there are adjustments, of course, to, to it. And he always treats you with infinite respect and encourages you to improvise. <coughs> it's usually rather a good idea to, to tell him first, but it doesn't, don't, don't have to. And there was a marvelous example of that when, in Sean Connery. Um, we were in the scene uh, in Indiana Jones when your viewers might remember when I'm first discovered to be the baddie and uh, the two men are tied up together back to back and they're muttering to each other. And I don't know what was in the original script. I can't remember now. But the dialogue went, um, um, Sean said, um, talking about the girl. She's, uh, she's German, of course. And Harrison goes, how do you know that? And I don't know what the original script was, 
but Sean said she talks in her sleep. <laughs> and Harrison's face at that moment, when he threw that out like that, was so fantastic. And you'll see, if you see the film again, it's, it's <clears throat> what are we talking about here? Absolutely fantastic. And we all fell on the floor, of course. And um, Spielberg said, that's in, that's in. And <laughs> like the great time when um, when uh, Harrison had the runs out in Africa, you've heard this. I have heard this. Okay, I'll mention it to your, your viewers. Um, but he had this great big scimitar fight with a, in, in the middle of a souk in, in North Africa and all the Indians and people around in a very dangerous atmosphere. And he had this great fight. And then on the morning of that great fight, which he'd rehearsed in detail, he had the runs and he had the, the belly, 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 you know, whatever they call it. And he, he, he could hardly stand. And he said, I can't do it to Stephen. Stephen said, we, oh, come on. You've got to do it because we've got the whole of this place organized. We've only got here for one day. And it's principally because of this fight. And uh, Harrison simply went, why don't I just go, pom? when we've got our swords out. And Spielberg said, that's it. Uh, everyone, we're organizing now. And that's what he just, he saw the great value of that immediately, right. that it was much better than the fight itself. I mean, like he's such a freak for films. He, he does things in his films, um, which are after other films. There's a sequence in Indiana Jones, uh, which you may remember when he goes underneath the, the lorry with his hat still on, right. and comes up front. Well, that's John Ford, that's stagecoach, where um, he went underneath the horse horses and underneath the cart and came up and he still had his hat on. <clears throat> that's a, and he had deliberately, I might have a move somewhere. And um, I said, I don't want to see more Stanislavski, but um, I don't quite know why I'm doing this movie. He said, well, you remember Bad Day at Black Rock when, uh, Spencer Tracy walked towards the bar and I said, that's why I want you to do that particular move. That, oh, yeah, I see. Okay, fine. And it absolutely works. He said, yep, yeah, that's what I wanted. <laughs> so, Sir Sean is no longer with us. Um, what is your favorite memory conversing or interacting with him? Well, Sean, well, it goes right back to what I talked about earlier on. Uh, the series I did for television called An Age of Kings, in which um, he was brought in to play uh, Hotspur, the character of Hotspur. Well, even those who have not heard the name before or even um, or don't know the play will recognise from that name. He's a pretty hot-blooded bloke. And he came in to play that, much to my chagrin. I thought I was going to get that part. And this footballer from from Scotland came in and played it. And uh, I, was, I was really upset at the beginning until he opened his mouth. I thought, oh, I couldn't touch this. <laughs> <laughs> They've got the right guy. We got on terribly well. And when, when we met again on Indiana Jones, it was, um, didn't fall each into each other's arms. We were very, very pleased to see each other, as, as I was with uh, Roger Moore on Pure Eyes Only. Uh, it's good to get friendly with the big ones on the way up. Because <laughs> <laughs> you know, both, I mean, Sean and, uh, and uh, Roger were great theatre goers and they respected my, um, my first, my love interest, which is the theatre. And um, 
used to come and see me, which is very, very flattering. And uh, so working with Steven Spielberg was, uh, he never told you off. He never, he never said that's bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. He never, he, he might say, not sure that's going to work like that. Um, could we try it like this? And always the first time you did it, he said, that's it. That's <laughs> it. But he, I never heard he attack anybody on the set for doing it badly, which is the first, the very first lesson any director should learn is that actors are silly little people. They're little green plants who need the baby bio poured on to develop right. into these big trees. And uh, which they do, tell them they're terrible and they'll be terrible. Uh, and so many directors do that. They bully actors. And, and they, yeah. the actor's in a very, very bad position because he's there, he's being paid, he's got to do the job, he's signed the contract. Uh, and there are ways of taking you into a corner and saying, we've got the wrong line on this. Um, you're, not, you're not playing what I think is there. That's a different matter. But in front of the, the crew and everyone ticking people off or... or Sorry, hobby horse here. <laughs> I want to ask you about one thing, and that is Harrison Ford is iconic as Indiana Jones. Being on the set, watching him do this role, what is it like to actually see him just dive into it? And are you amazed that he's able to still do the role today? In fact, the, the trailer came out today as well. Oh, did it? Have you yeah. seen it? I did. I watched it earlier. Yes. Is it's amazing. Good? Yes. Have they taken advantage of the fact that he's older? Yes, they have. And also they've de-aged for some flashbacks. That's excellent, because the last film, they didn't do that. Right. And wasn't quite up to it. And, and I got him very embarrassed watching him be Indiana Jones. And I prayed that the next one, he would, that he would be his age, and maybe he'll get a few things wrong, and <laughs> uh, which, which will be very good. I'm delighted. He's a... He's a a very taciturn man um, with a, a sharp as a razor wit, which mm. comes out about a, a, once every three days. <laughs> and it'll be, a, it'll be an over his shoulder remark. It won't be a, a straight on. And it'll make you fall to the ground with laughter. He's a great thinker. He works very, very hard indeed. I've never, ever heard him in the whole of that film have to go again because he dried up. Never, never, never. Uh, he works so hard. He knows exactly what he wants to do, obviously having discussed it with, uh, with Stephen. But even then, he would take a direction from Stephen um, and quite willingly take it. Uh, I liked him very much, but you, you didn't go to a party um, uh, in order to have jokes with Harrison. Uh, actually, he didn't go to parties, so that didn't, that didn't occur. But you wouldn't. Um, if he was at a party, you'd hope he was in one of those good good ones <laughs> i don't think he drinks even i don't think he drinks what led you to game of thrones and did you have a clue it was going to be the global phenomenon it became not at all i auditioned for it three times along with many of my colleagues in different roles in it and failed to get any of the parts we had no idea then of course what it was going to do right uh, we just thought oh this is a rather nice thing mm, good long series yes mm. Let's hope I'm in it. Um, but I failed, and I got into it. Uh, again, luck. That someone I knew quite well, and I lived, lived in America, and at that time lived in America, called Roy Dutrice, had already been cast in my part. He got ill, very ill. 
so ill that he couldn't do the part. They knew it was going to go on. And so they called me up in a bit of a panic, actually. Um, and I started like four days later. Uh, but that was a stroke of luck for me, and I can talk about it because uh, Roy got better and he played another part in the series. And so I, I didn't feel bad about stepping into Dead Men's Shoes, as it were, you know what I mean? And um, and he was very good and very satisfied. Uh, he knew the he knew the uh, the producers very well, and uh, it was a sort of life's work reward, I think, for Roy. Um, anyway, I got it, and uh, I, I, for the most part, I absolutely loved doing it. It was not a very comfortable physically comfortable part because I had this beard, which was so irritating. I can't tell you. Um, <laughs> had to take off the bottom part and of my beard and the moustache to have lunch. Um, and also the big cloak that I wore, um, I had a great big iron necklace uh, around my neck, which was with iron, it wasn't plastic, it really heavy and it was so heavy that I know I played the part like that, but I didn't want to be like that all the time. So they put me on a wrestler's belt underneath, with two hooks on it, and they tied it to this thing, and they tied this thing to my belt at the back to keep it upright like that. So while I bent over, I was doing it on purpose, not because I had to. Mm. And that was quite uncomfortable on the shoulders, as you can imagine. It was like wearing a piece of armor all day. Mm -hmm. But that having been said, it was a joy to play. I, I know I found him. I found the man for my satisfaction. He, he was an enigma at the beginning, and he was an enigma at the end. People can't make up their minds about old Paisel. I knew just what I was. He was a clever bugger. That's what he was. Clever old there bugger. Is, there is, uh, all the fans asked me to ask you this one question, and that there was a deleted scene where yes. you share with Charles Dance. Yes. Uh, talk us through that, and are you upset that it was cut from the final I episode? Will, I will. Um, I'll tell you about it. I'll tell your viewers about it. It was a, very early on, I said to the producers and the writers, We've got to have a scene where it's shown. And we've got to uh, got to find something else about this man, uh, who instead of being just an old dodder at the end of a table, I said, and I had a dream that night about that he was someone who was somebody else when he was in his private privacy, and, uh, and they came to me the next day and said, we've had this idea uh, that he he's private in, in, when he's by himself, but he only pretends to it. I said, I, I can't believe this. He's sort of the same thing as me. Anyway. So I said, we've got it when they decided we were going to do that. I said, we've got to have a scene which establishes that. And indeed they did. And I think in episode three, I think it was, when I was with this whore and um, and I got up and do a bit of stretching and things like that and bend over and go out of the door and hold like that. Uh, and later on, I'm sort of, it's sort of revealed, but not very strongly. And they decided quite rightly to revive the memory uh, of... The, the viewers or the people who hadn't seen it already was another scene which said quite simply there was Charles Dance fishing on the, in the shore and I came down with a message for him of some kind and he, he virtually turned around and said what's your game what are, you, what are you playing at I know you're not what you seem to be and I realised then I said okay you've uh, what we call sussed me out you've uh, yes got it so I rose to my full height in that and I explained that I was determined to die in a proper way, that I'd given my service to the state. I didn't want any of these deaths that keep on happening. I was wrong about that, because I did get it. But um, 
I, I explained myself quite fully to him and he listened. He said, yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. Okay, fine. Uh, and it was a very, very good scene because we, we, we smiled and we, it, was a, it was a real good connection. And you placed me, I was exactly placed so anybody from there onward would know what was actually going on. And as you say, they cut the scene and I was very, very angry. Normally in films, you don't get angry when they cut scenes because, listen, you know you're not indispensable and uh, if they don't want that scene, they don't want that scene. And I went to them, I said, this is outrageous. They said, why? And they said, oh, well, timing, timing, it was too long, the episode. I said, well, lots of things in this episode could have gone without that. Anyway, you did, you did do it. Uh, I'm not going to do the next series. I, I, I went all bullshit on it. And they said, you must do the next series. And I said, no, I mustn't. I said, you must. You, you, we've got things for you. I said, have you? What have you got for me? They said, uh, oh, we can't, we can't tell you that yet. You know, this new thing in films that you're not allowed to reveal anything. Um, I said, well, if you can't tell me, then good night. And eventually, after much again, um, they let me see the scene they meant, which was my death scene, which is absolutely terrific. <laughs> I, and I said, I will do this uh, on two conditions. One, because the film filming was nearly at an end then, I will do it when I'm free, not when you f think I'm going to do it. Um, I'll suggest a few dates when I'm free, and I'll do it on that one day when I'm free. And, and I said, and the second thing, you must pay me three times my fee for that episode. And um, within 10 minutes, they came through and said yes. Mm -hmm. So it sort of proves the case that uh, if you really don't want something, you'll probably get it. <laughs> what did you What did you think of the finale? Well, everybody argues about this, don't they? But actually, I don't think as much. I, I thought it was very disappointing. Nothing wrong with the acting or the script writing or anything. I just think it went to the wrong person. Um, he, I mean, he's a lovely actor and a lovely fella, incidentally. Um, and he fulfills that role beautifully. He's very lovely to look at and all that that seemed to me to be far too obvious i think it should have been tywin it should have been um, um, Tyrion. Mm. um i can just see his little legs <laughs> hanging over the edge of that throne and he was one of the most intelligent people in the whole series he didn't behave very well very often um, but never as bad as cersei or that man whose name i can't even bother to remember <laughs> uh, Oh, that was extraordinary doing that. That's particular scene when he was killed. Got a round of applause, you know, on the set. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, th th that was my little story of that, and I, so I did it, and um, and we ended up good friends. But um, I was very, very cross. And I think from the reaction, the fact that you brought it up, uh, I get it every single time I do a conversion. Why did they cut that scene? Or, could you tell me about that scene? And I say, yes, and you can see it on so-and-so. Uh, and they come back the next day and say, ah, why did they cut it? Uh, so I know it was a good scene. Right. But there you go. That's movies. And I was in the series. What's the matter with me? Right. No. <laughs> I want to ask you, what do you remember when you won the Sir Lawrence Olivier Award? Oh, it was so wonderful. I can't tell you. It was a part I played. Well, I... They were very right to cast me in it because I, I there were so many things in me that I recognised about this extraordinary man I was to play. Um, and it grew in rehearsals and it grew and 
my wife gave me a fantastic hint at one point, not a hint, a groundbreaking thing, which completely fundamentally made my performance. But I, you, you don't think in terms of awards, do you? Not when you're doing Shakespeare or Stratford. <laughs> and this announcement was made and that um, Robert Stevens, who was playing Falstaff, your uh, viewers may re remember that name, if not the person, who was a big fat man anyway, um, was nominated for Best Actor and I was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. And I, it's, uh, I'd been to those awards and thought, what's it? Because I'd once been nominated before and didn't get it. <clears throat> for obviously another part. And so I knew what the format was and I always thought, oh, but wonderful to go up there and take this amazing award with my hero. Laurence Olivier was my absolute hero. Um, so still is in a way. Anyway, and uh, that he made that award and I won for him that award. I was, I was moved to tears uh, of happiness, I suppose. And I'd done something that people might notice. Uh, you know, we struggle all the times we act as uh, to, to, to not to be noticed, but to be accepted as someone who transmits ideas and, and amusement and sadness and thoughts and things to people. But we want to, want to know that that's working. And when you get an award like the Olivier Award, which is a very, very serious award indeed, then you feel well, maybe it was all worth it. Beautiful. All right. So if you can talk about it, um, feel free. What is next for you? Nothing is next for me at the moment, except the publication of my book, which just got, which I'm, as I said at the beginning, I'm madly pushing. Um, but there are, I'm sorry, we can't, we don't talk about things that are coming up, in this, but uh, uh, there's one thing quite definite. I did Tar last year, which was yeah. with Kate Blanchett, which was one of the great privileges of my life, uh, really was. Um, but that was my last film. And I've done little bits and pieces since then, but there's about in the year, the, the Queen's Jubilee year, uh, I did a play called Morris's Jubilee, which was about the Queen and about me, and I mean, it doesn't matter what it was about. It was an absolutely glorious play. Uh, the most enjoyable thing I've ever done in a theatre in my career. No one's ever heard of it. We toured it in England. It doesn't matter. That, and that's in the book, by the way. And I realised when I was doing that that uh, it would make a terribly good film if it was done properly. Well, there are steps afoot. That's all I can say. There are steps afoot uh, to make it into a film. But by no means definite. It would be wonderful. I had to act... 10 years ago, a 90-year-old. Well, I'm not far off that now, so I wouldn't. there's a lot of acting I wouldn't have to do. <laughs> uh, staggering around the room with walking sticks. But that is a, um, a possibility, and that's, that's all I can say. Nice. All right, Julian, I end my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of Earth? Well, my life has been strictly limited to one particular activity. 
I would say to anyone that has an ambition to do a particular thing, if you can think of anything else that you'd like to do as well, have a good think about that, do it. Don't do that great thing, which is your ambition, to be prime minister. It happens with my business and it happens in a lot of other businesses. You've really got to, to, to know that it's the thing that you do. Anything else could be pleasant to do. It's rather a long message for the future, isn't it? Anything <laughs> might be pleasant to do, but it isn't the thing that you've been told to do in there. And I'd say, what's that? If there's anything else you'd like to do, do it. Awesome. The book is Q to Q, a career in episodes available on Amazon UK, Phantom Publishing, and other book outlets. Julian, this has been an absolute incredible honor for me. And thank you for coming on the show and speaking with me. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Very, very great pleasure. Lovely questions and easy to answer. Bless your heart. Thank, thank you okay. so much. And just like that, Devon Nation, we come to the end of episode 169. I want to thank Julian for taking the time out of his incredibly busy schedule to come on the show today and speak with me. What an extraordinary life he has led, and his IMDb credits read as a must-watch for every film and television show he has appeared in. I also want to thank Thomas at Bowington Management for making this interview possible. He is one of the true heroes in this story. Okay, tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. I have a really good one coming up in a few days, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for that episode to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode, especially this one? I truly hope you have, so please go hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing Tee Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there with everything without a logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to the banner on the left that says Merch. Click that, and you will be taken to our store on Tee Public. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening... Go and watch Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade this week. It's my favorite of the lot. And Julian is just a truly terrific villain in the film. And also the chemistry with Ford and Connery is just completely delightful. Enjoy it. It Honestly, it's just a damn good film. No star, God bless. And see you next time. Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.